We're picking up in verse 9 where we left off last week uh, going through. It's been a little more time here in Romans 12 and especially in these verses, verses 9 through 21. We could camp out for a while on these because each one is worth a sermon of its own. But it's almost like uh, Paul is shooting a proverbial shotgun out here with all the things that are characterize us as uh, the followers of Christ and what that looks like in, in the world. You know, and it's never failed wherever I have served as a pastor in all my years as, as ministry. Uh, when you're in a community for any amount of time, I eventually would, in my comings and goings, in and out, in and out of any community in my, my three pastorates, always run into somebody that, uh, you know, you meet somebody for the first time and they ask, what, what do you do for a living? And, uh, you know, I'd say, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, where do you pastor? And I say, First Baptist Church. They go, oh, I could never go to your church. You know, some of the people down there are hypocrites that I know. You know, and, it's, and it's, it always kind of creates a tension when someone says that about, about your church family. So my response for, you know, 33 years has, has always been the same. It kind of uh, is an attempt to diffuse this, the situation and add some levity to it. My response always is when they say, oh, there's some people that are hypocrites at your church. I could never go there. I always say, now, don't let that stop you from coming and worshiping with us because we always have room for one more. And it diffuses the situation and, and we both laugh. And, you know, the thing is about when somebody says that, that there are some hypocrites at our church, uh, I, vehemently, I vehemently, vehemently disagree with that assessment that there are some hypocrites at our church. I would say in response that we are all hypocrites at our church. To some degree, we all are. Because none of us are yet what we want to be. None of us are what we should be. None of us are yet what we could be in Christ Jesus. So the truth of the matter is, is that there is a little bit of hypocrisy in, in all of us, that there is a difference between the confession of our mouth and the life that we sometimes live. I think we all feel that tension if we're serious about being devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I think we all feel that, that tension in our life, in our study of Scripture, in the messages that we hear, uh, in our own study of Scripture, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, by the, by the man in the mirror that looks at us every day. Uh, we, we know that there is a difference between in our life sometimes and the confession that we make in our mouth. And so we all feel this tension between what Jesus said in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 6 and verse 46, where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say? We all feel that tension, don't we? Now, Jesus said, Jesus said a great deal about, about hypocrisy, those who pretend to be something that, that they're not. Over in, in Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes his first statement about, about hypocrisy. He said, now, whenever you fast, do not make a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they distort their faces so that they will be noticed by people when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their, their reward in, in full. Or when it comes to the idea of judging people, which he forbids, Jesus says in Chapter 7 and verse 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your, your brother's eye. Again, in Matthew 15, he says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you by saying the people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, far away from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine 
the commandments of, of men. But his most scathing indictments were for the religious leaders of, of his day and time, the famous woe passages that, that we find over in Matthew chapter chapter 23, verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people, for you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering it to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And then in verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't negate the tithe. He's saying you still ought to do that, you, uh, but, but your faithfulness isn't to be limited to what people see you doing in the temple. You still ought to tithe. But the greater concern is what you're doing out there in the world. You're not reflecting justice. You're not, you're not reflecting faithfulness. You're not being merciful as I've been merciful to you. And so we hear these words, these teachings of, of Jesus. We sense the conviction of the Spirit in our own hearts and lives. We see our lives in contrast to the Word of God. And so there's this tension, isn't there, that we deal with. Now, tension's healthy. See, I don't mind the tension. I, I think we need to embrace the tension because it says to us that we're not yet what we should be. We're not, we're not yet to that place where God would have us to be. And so I think what, when we are serious about being followers of Jesus Christ, when, when we want his life, when we want his life and ministry to be manifested in our lives, to be a people that are committed and devoted to following after him, I think what we are struggling with is we want to close that gap between what we confess, what we know, what we believe, and the life that we are living. And we want to work on a daily basis, labor, where a people, as Paul would say in Philippians, that, that are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is, we're laboring to make manifest our faith. And so my desire, and I know your desire as a follower of Christ, is that you want to close that gap between what you know, what you confess, what you believe, and the life that you're living to the point that, that there's no difference between the two. And we know the reality is so we're, never we're never going to arrive there in this lifetime. That that will not become the reality of who we are until the fullness of God's redemptive purposes are accomplished to the new heaven and a new earth. But you know what? Until then, this is our labor of love. We do it with energy, we do it with vigor, we do it with passion to close this gap between what we know, what we confess, what we believe, and the life that we're living. It's our labor of love, which is, interestingly is what Paul alludes to here in verse 9 of our text. He says, love must be free from hypocrisy. Love must be free of hypocrisy. And so you desire to be free from this kind of hypocrisy, the accusation of, of hypocrisy from the world, the condemnation of hypocrisy that the man in the mirror is always imposing upon us. 
Well, he's saying, he's saying that love is, is the route. And so in this verse, in the verses that follow all the way to the end of chapter 12, what I see is Paul revealing to us the remedy to our hypocrisy, our escape from hip- hypocrisy. And the first thing that Paul says, notice there in in verse 9, I want us to read this again. The first thing that Paul says is necessary, he gives to us a focus to be highlighted. If you really want to escape from hypocrisy, if you really want to to, to be continuous in this journey of becoming what God would have us to become, there is a focus that has to be the highlight of your life. And Paul says love, love must be free of hypocrisy. Now, we're not surprised that he uses that word love, especially as he has just described some spiritual gifts in those previous verses in Romans 12. You know, he would do the same thing when he talks about spiritual gifts over in his Corinthian letter in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. There was an issue there where they were trying to to elevate themselves as some gifts being superior to other gifts. Some were greater, some were lesser. But Paul keeps coming back saying, no, 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 no. Now, the spiritual gifts that God gives to the church that he endows, that he gives to the church, these, these are grace gifts. These are not merited gifts. It's not because you've earned it or you're more spiritual than someone else. And then as he talks about those variety of gifts and their proper use in 1 Corinthians 12, do you know in that final verse, verse 31 in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, but you know what? You're all caught up in these spiritual gifts, who has what gifts, how you're exercising your gifts, thinking that you're superior because you have this gift and someone else doesn't. Listen, Paul says at the end of chapter 12, I'm going to show you a way that is superior I'm going to show you a more superior way. And what does he do? In the next chapter, chapter 13, he spends an entire chapter talking about love. When Paul talks about a superior way for the church to accomplish its effectiveness, Paul says this way is far better. He spends an entire chapter talking about love, arguably one of the most beautiful depictions of love in the entirety of Scripture. So we're not surprised by him using that word. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the first virtue is what? It's love. At the very foundation of God's redemptive purposes, it is always driven and motivated by love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever might believe in him shall have eternal life why Jesus would say in, in John's gospel, it's, it's recorded for us. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In other words, this love that Paul is talking about here in, in verse 9, this kind of love Not our religiosity, not our piety. The world doesn't see this. Uh, We're the only ones that see what goes on in here. But but it is this kind of love and not our religiosity that will be our deliverance from hypocrisy. When the world looks at us and they're wondering about the life of faith, they're wondering what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they're not going to be impressed by our piety inside this building. What they will recognize out there in the world is how you love, 
How is the love of God being made manifest in your life on a daily basis? So this love is the sum of all virtue. It's the highest good. It's the greatest good. It is the higher thing, the loftier thing. So it says for me that I have to have a visionary focus as a child of God, as a follower of Christ. I have, a, I have to have a visionary focus on this greater good that will not only bear testimony to what God is seeking to accomplish in the world, but will also be my route of escape from my hypocrisy. When I'm seeking to love is God has loved. Can you imagine the impact that would have? I mean, when this, when this becomes the why of how we live and what we do as being followers of Christ, can you imagine globally the transformational impact it would have if every believer had this visionary kind of focus on manifesting and making known the love of God in the world? It's a higher good. read some time ago about a phone call that Harry Belafonte, entertainer, social advocate, back in 1956, Harry Belafonte made a phone call to Coretta Scott King, the wife of Martin Luther King. He had just been arrested once again, the leader of the civil rights movement. And Harry Belafonte called her to see how she was doing, how the civil rights movement was doing, and was there anything that, that they needed? And their, their phone conversation or their attempt at a phone conversation was constantly interrupted. Coretta Scott King had to go take care of their small children, something the children were distracting, and she would excuse herself again. She had to go take something out of the oven, or she would, she would excuse herself once again from the phone call because somebody was at the front door. And it dawned on Belafonte, they're trying to do this all on their own. And he politely asked her, Coretta do y'all not have any help at your house? And she said, oh no, Martin would never allow it. We could never afford such luxury anyway on a, on a minister's salary. And besides, Martin is so concerned about, about appearances when, thou, when millions of blacks are, are experiencing such injustice, suffering so much, Martin would never allow us to have, to have help. Belafonte said, that's absolutely ridiculous. Here is this man, here is your husband, the leader of the civil rights movement, doing so much for so many, for the benefit of all. And he's worried about what people think about him, about appearances. Well, your life is going to change today, Harry Belafonte said. I am staffing your house. And Martin will have no say in the matter. Now, what Harry Belafonte did was not just an act of kindness for a family in need by a family that is being swamped and overwhelmed by adversity. He was giving them peace of mind. What he did was strategic because he knew because of his visionary focus for a greater cause, he knew that if I take care of the ancillary things, these distracting things, then they can focus the very best of who they are, their time and energy on the main thing. Love is our main thing. Love is our, 
our why. It is what will allow the church to be a transforming influence in our world. And it will be our route of deliverance from the charges and the accusations of hypocrisy. Love must be free from hypocrisy. And, he said, and then he says, this is how it manifests itself. It detests, second clause, it detests what is evil. And it clings to what is good. It's a very strong word, that word detest. It means uh, literally it is, it is to hate exceedingly. It is to see evil for what it is. Evil is that which seeks to cor- corrupt that which is created in the image of God. Evil is that which, which seeks to steal away the glory of God's image that, that reigns in humanity. And knowing that and understanding that, he said, then, then we, must, we must exceedingly hate evil and then cling. The word means like glue. Cling like glue to that which is good. And when love is manifested in that way, the world will see your faith. They will see what it is to be a follower of Christ and the hypocrisy, the charges of hypocrisy against you will go away. A second thing, in light of what he has said in that second clause, we see that there are some things that must be added, some things that must be taken away. So I, I want us to look at, at three verses in this, in this shotgun blast of proverbial statements that he offers here. Most are positive actions that we have to take. There's three that he alludes to here. There's three attitudes that he alludes to here in verses 11, 16, and 19. And this is the second thing I want to, to speak to. These are the attitudes to be eliminated. That you and I, if, if we are to be delivered, if we are to, to, to find freedom from our hypocrisy, it, it requires not just a focus to be highlighted in our, in our lives, this love that Paul discussed, but also there's some attitudes that must be eliminated. He says, not lagging behind, verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. Verse 16, do not be haughty in mind. And then in verse 19, never take your your own revenge. In other words, he's saying there's some attitudes that are counterproductive to your growth as as believers and followers of Christ. There's some attitudes that are counterproductive to your desire to be a loving witness in, in the world. There are counterproductive attitudes that keep you from growing as a follower of Christ and getting to that place where he would have each one of us to be. So Paul talks about laziness not lagging behind in diligence. Some of your translations may have, may have the word slothful. He said you can't, be, you can't be slothful, you can't be lazy as a follower of, of Christ. You can't be haughty in mind. You can't be conceited. You can't have an attitude that thinks yourself superior over someone else. And you can't have a, in verse 19, you, you can't have a vengeful spirit. These are counterproductive attitudes. Now, what I see here is when Paul talks about not being slothful, when he talks about not lagging behind in diligence, I think that is foundational to every other, every other negative attitude that he lists here and every other one that's not listed. Because a person that is lazy, a person that is slothful, 
The reason, it, it, it means that they are undisciplined, they are unintentional, they are not being deliberate, they are not exercising the energy and the wherewithal that is necessary to avoid these kind of destructive attitudes. That's why the wisdom writer would oftentimes talk about the ant as being our example. The ant is industrious. You ever watch ants work? They, I mean, they're, they're not just randomly going around. You, I mean, you can draw a line and where, a, where ants go and they're, they're going to try to find, they're going to find a way to get back on their route. They, they move deliberately and intentional. They have a task that, that they're seeking to accomplish. The proverbial writer, the wisdom writer is always warning against laziness and slothfulness. Laziness steals away your opportunities. Napoleon said it well, you may, you may lose battles, but never lose a moment to sloth. And the truth is, no one has greater difficulty in life. There is no one who struggles more in life. Life in general, but especially in the life of faith and in this journey of becoming everything that God would have us to become. Those who struggle the most are those who are lazy. They're undisciplined. And to overcome it means I have to discipline myself when it, it means I have to discipline myself to say yes and no. Yes to those things that are productive in the kingdom of God, in my enrichment, in my development as a child of God, becoming the kind of servant that he would have, to be, have me to be. And the discipline to say no, the intentionality of saying no to those things that are counterproductive. It's how you organize your decision. We are bombarded. Think about all the decisions we make on a daily basis. I mean, from the moment, from the moment our eyes open, I'm either saying yes or I'm saying no. Whether it's circumstances, choices that I have to make, or whether it's yes or no to individuals, you have to say yes or no. From the moment you wake up, you're making a choice. Am I going to get up? Am I going to be industrious? Am I going to be, am I going to be diligent? Listen, Jimmy Carter said it best, former President Jimmy Carter. He said, I can wake up later and be rested, or I can get up early and be president of the United States. It's true of all of us. Listen, the pathway to success, the pathway to victorious living, it's never found under the covers laying on a mattress. I can assure you that. Say yes or no. What is productive? What is counterproductive? And I'm, not, and I'm not talking about being, no doesn't mean, hearing someone say no doesn't mean they're being rude. The ability and the craft and the art of learning how to say no. It means that you have disciplined your life. It means you have priorities means you understand the stewardship of life. It means you understand that the amount of time that you have here on this earth as a child of God, that your time is limited. And so I have to be a steward of that time. I have to know who I am in Christ Jesus. I have to know my giftedness. I have to know what is most productive for the purposes of God. And what in contrast is just a bunch of busy work. And the answer to the laziness that Paul is describing here 
It's just discipline. From the time you wake up in the morning till you lay down at night. Somebody says, well, you know, eh, I'm just not a morning person. You know, all, all you're saying when somebody says I'm not a morning person, all they're, all they're saying is I'm undisciplined with my nights. If you want to master your mornings, master your evenings. That's all it is. Yes or no. What are the attitudes that you need to release, that you need to let go of, that are counterproductive to what God would seek to accomplish in your life? You say, well, Bobby, I've got some ingrained habits. Man, I'm just trapped by some things that are counterproductive. I mean, what's the escape? Well, take pen in hand and write this in the margin. Here's how you, here's how you stop those things that are counterproductive in your life. You ready? Just stop. Can you believe it? Just stop. Oh, I can't. No, you can't. Gene Edward Smith, biographer for Dwight D. Eisenhower, said that he had a three to four pack a day cigarette habit. Just quit told turkey. Quit. One day said, I'm done. Not smoking again. Never touched him again after smoking three to four packs a day. The secret to stopping is just stop. It's your choice. It's your decision. What is productive, what is counterproductive in the life of faith. It means I'm going to develop the discipline and the skill and the ability that the moment anything tries to capture me to become master of me, I'm going to say no. I'm a steward of the time God has entrusted to me. A third thing, we're not surprised by this, the fact that there are certain attitudes that have to be eliminated, there are behaviors to be actualized. And that's the focus of Paul here. He accentuates much more the things that are to be proactive, the things that are to be actualized in our lives. Let's just pick it up here and not lagging behind verse 11, not lagging. Oh, let's go to verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Here he uses the word, uses the word Philadelphia. Previously in, in verse 10 or verse 9, rather, he'd used the word agape. Paul, I think, was very deliberate in choosing that word agape. It, it, it separates the kind of love that he is speaking of here, a godly kind of love, a willed commitment to love in the absence of feelings. He deliberately chose that word agape in contrast to other expressions of love in the Greek language that are based on feelings and emotions. Eros, eroticism, sexual attraction. Philadelphia here is a familial kind of love. But now he's saying, you know, I want this. I want you to have this sense of kinship in the body of Christ. I want you to be de devoted to one another, a brotherly kind of love. Giving preference to one another in honor. This is a culture Paul is writing to. You look at Greek literature. It was undergirded by the pursuit of glory and honor. Doxa and time. I mean, those are, the, those are the virtues of that, that culture. Wars were fought in Greek literature. And literally, wars were fought over this issue of honor. Now, Paul says, for the body of Christ as believers, instead of you seeking your own honor as the culture is doing, you seek honor for others. Rejoicing, not, well, verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit. Fire in your heart is what he's saying. 
You want to overcome laziness? Get a fire in your heart for serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Ours is not wishful thinking. Hope is a certainty for us as believers. It's a certainty that is just not yet. We're just waiting patiently. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in, in tribulation because my hope is not based upon circumstances or, or the situation of the moment. Because my hope is out there, I can persevere through all things. Devoted to prayer, that's how I keep in the forefront of my mind, this devotion to prayer. That's how I keep in the forefront of my mind this hope in which I rejoice. Otherwise, I'm allowing the world and its circumstances to dictate my sense of well-being. Contributing to the needs of the saints, verse 13, which is what Paul was doing. Paul's gathering up offering from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia for those, for those impoverished saints back, back in Jerusalem. Practicing hospitality. That's much more affable in Paul's days. You know, the, the spread of Christianity in the life of, in the days of Paul was very much dependent, itinerant preachers depended upon those who had the gift of hospitality, of hosting them in their home for the furtherance of the gospel. Bless those who, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That, that's to invoke God's blessings upon those who, who would persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is our mutual, our mutual relationship with, with one another that, that is so foreign to, to the world. It's our compatibility with one another to, to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's in contrast to the world. The world rejoices when people weep, when they experience hardship. And they're bitter and they're jealous when they see their, their joy. And then be of the same mind. He's going to use the word phroneo, talking about the mind. He's going to use it three times in this verse. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't be conceited, he says. We do well to hear the words of, of James in regard to to not being haughty and having the same mind towards, towards all people. In James' letter, he would write, listen to chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in and you pay special attention to the, to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? which he promised to those who love him. But you dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? And we hear these words and we nod in a sense. I get in a sense to what Paul, Paul James writes. We say, I get it. But we practice otherwise. 
I can't tell you the number of times as a pastor where after a Sunday service, someone will come back to the foyer and say, oh, did, pastor, did you see who was in church this morning? No, I didn't. And they will inevitably tell me someone of affluence that's in the community. Oh, pastor, I, I hope you'll make a special effort to reach out to them. There's family. I hope, you will, I hope you'll make a special effort. You know, there, there's somebody in our community. I say, well, they'll get, they'll get the same phone call and same note that everybody else gets at visits. Listen, church, we need, we need to understand this once and for all in a culture that is so, that is so impressed with affluence and things. God looks no differently upon the individual who is sipping champagne at the country club and the one who is guzzling ripple down in the gutter. God doesn't look at them any differently, nor should we. And we won't. It's unbecoming of those who are to look different to the world. It's this kind of very thing that traps us in our hypocrisy. But you know what the most difficult words are? It's these that follow all the way through verse 21 where he says, never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people, if possible so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Revenge keeps evil in circulation. We're to be a people of peace. We represent, we are ambassadors of the Prince of Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God, children of God. It's not just praying about peace, wishing about peace. It's about taking the deliberate actions that will actually accomplish peace. And arguably, I think, because everything that Paul has set forth here, everything here goes against what comes natural. What Paul says here is counterintuitive. But it's, but it's human nature, whether you're talking about in your own family, whether you're talking about in a community, whether you're talking about the Middle East, you're talking about Northern, Northern Ireland, where revenge is continually pursued, evil continues to have circulation. It's never broken. The cycle is never broken unless we are deliberate and intentional in doing something different. Not just doing what comes natural, but doing the unnatural, if not the supernatural. Is it even possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's a choice again. 1962, Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Birmingham, Alabama. He was in his introductory comments. He was thanking the audience for, for having been there. And uh, he was actually laying out the calendar for the events in the year that is to come when uh, all of a sudden there was an unexpected white man, a white supremacist and a, a registered American Nazi jumped up on the stage and approached Dr. King and began beating him violently. In fact, the first blow was so overwhelming, it spun Dr. King around completely. And by that time, the man was just pummeling, raining down punches upon his head and his back. 
As you can imagine, the audience was stunned to silence and all you could hear was the smashing together of bone and flesh. Some in the audience that day, in that integrated audience, some thought it was a staged event, something that maybe Dr. King had staged, but they soon realized that it was no staged event at all. And in the heart of that moment, Dr. King did the unexpected. Instead of raising his hands in, in defense or striking back, he turned his face and dropped his hands like an infant to his side and literally turned the other cheek so that the man could strike blows upon him. And as stunned as the audience was, Roy James was no less stunned. And in that moment of pause, it gave time for other individuals to come up between those, those two men to put a stop to this. And in that pandemonium, the one voice you heard in the midst of all of that pandemonium was the voice of Dr. King saying, don't touch him, don't touch him. We need to pray for him. And as everyone in that auditorium began to sing and to pray aloud, Dr. King spoke to Roy James quietly, peacefully, walked him to a side office where they shared a conversation together. Dr. King would soon return to the podium, having taken two aspirin that he received from Rosa Parks and finished his speech with an ice pack on the side of his face. Dr. King, as he oftentimes said, when you take nonviolence to be your lawfully wedded wife, it's one thing to say that, it's another thing to take it when you are being beaten in the very presence of your friends and supporters. But he knew something larger was at stake in that moment. He knew that what was at stake was the demonstration of Christian love and the philosophy of nonviolence. When it would have been easy for him to fight back or even to defend himself as would have been natural, he chose instead to do the supernatural. He chose to stand there and to take it because he knew if he did otherwise, you know what his critics would have called him? A hypocrite. A hypocrite who just preached nonviolence and then did otherwise. You say, oh, I, I could never do that. Yeah, you could. How did he do it? Well, all he did was demonstrate what any of us can do by virtue of what God has accomplished through Christ Jesus, described by Paul. Martin Luther King just gave a practical demonstration of these theological realities in Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were yet still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But someone, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we, have been, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In other words, Paul is saying is that when humanity is what it was at its very worst, at the height of its evil, God incarnate came and took all of that evil upon himself, rendering it powerless, introducing a new order of a kingdom, a new kingdom order through which you and I can rise above what is intuitive and natural and do the unnatural and do the supernatural to not do what everyone would expect us to do. The strange thing to me, the irony of it all, is that when the world accuses us of hypocrisy. Their accusation of hypocrisy against us is because we live like them. You ever thought about it? We're accused of hypocrisy by the world because we behave like the world. And we're hypocrites. Which says that the world doesn't expect us to be perfect but it expects us to be different. And that's what Paul is holding forth. When we pursue this kind of love, it is without hypocrisy. And the world sees us as being different and not like them. Father, what a challenge these words are to us. To be a people who do not respond in kind. A people who do not react emotionally. But that we as those who have been transformed by the power of Christ. That we have the ability to pause. Before we ever react. And determine what is the higher good. The greater good. What is it that will demonstrate love. Father, might we leave here today with that kind of new understanding, with the power that has been entrusted to us to be a different kind of people, a kingdom people, that when we are these kind of people, we demonstrate not only your love, but we avoid and we escape the charge of hypocrisy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.